0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, the great pianist Jason Moran joins us at the Piano When he was a child, he studied classical music through the Suzuki method, but his music life changed when he heard Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight.
2: I'll play the first opening phrase. Okay, nothing in Suzuki sounds like that. (laughs) (laughs) Just nothing sounds like that. And then it gets to one of the most incredible melodies.
1: Moran's latest album is his take on the music of James Reese Europe. And we'll hear from writer Andre Dubuce. His new novel, Such Kindness, asks how a person can get on with life after an accident that leads to disability and flames of chronic pain. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. what does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is
1: Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Joining me at the piano is a terrific musician and composer, Jason Moran. The first time I interviewed him in 2005, when Moran was 30, I quoted our jazz critic Kevin Whitehead, who called him one of those rare up-and-comers who makes you optimistic for the future of jazz. Well, Moran is no longer an up-and-comer, and and he certainly fulfilled his promise— He's making exciting recordings that draw on the early years of jazz as well as the avant-garde. He's the Kennedy Center Artistic Director for jazz, and he curated the permanent exhibition in the new Louis Armstrong Center in Queens, New York, which is across the street from Armstrong's preserved home. He also teaches at the New England Conservatory of Music. Moran composes music and has also put his own spin on the works of early jazz pianists and composers, including Fats Waller and James P. Johnson. His new album is a tribute to James Reese Europe, an important but little remembered figure in jazz history. In the early 1900s, Europe led his own band and founded the Clef Club, which functioned like a union for black musicians. He was the music director for the then-famous dance duo Vernon and Irene Castle. In World War I, Europe joined the army and fought with the 369th Regiment of the Infantry, known as the Harlem Hellfighters. He also led a regiment band that combined military music and syncopation, creating a new sound. Jason Moran's new album is called From the Dance Hall to the Battlefield, and it features Moran's take on James Reese Europe's compositions and pop music of that time. It's available only on Bandcamp for streaming or download. Jason Moran is joining us from the studios of WNYC in New York. Jason, welcome back to the show. It's so exciting to have you at the piano and to have you back.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm smiling like crazy. <laughs> oh, great.
1: So the first thing I want to do is play some music. Mm. So first I want to play James Reese Europe from like the 19-teens. I think it's like the late 19-teens playing the Castle House Rack. Mm. And um, the castle refers to the dance duo Vernon and Irene Castle. So first I want to play some of the recording. Mm. And then we'll hear your interpretation of it at the piano. So tell us what you'd like us to listen for in this recording. And I should say, I really love James Reese Europe's music.
2: You know, in this recording, there's something so raw about the percussion. (laughs) It's like they're not necessarily playing drums or cymbals. It's like some other kind of contraption from the early 1900s. And then there's this phrasing, you know, knowing that James Reese Europe becomes one of the pivotal forces of dance music. There's something driving about it that the way I hear it now is I hear it related to house music or techno music. So there's something about the repetition of that first phrase, and uh, it's just a driving beat. And, uh, and it seems like, you know, it's a galloping song that's about to go out of control, but it's so contained, too, in its energy.
1: All right, let's hear it. I want to say to our listeners— it's a very old recording. It's a really early <laughs> recording, so it's not going to sound like what you're used to. But, you know, try to get past that and just really listen to the music and not to the recording quality. So that was James Reese Europe's band from like the late 19-teens doing his composition, The Castle House Rack. And Jason Moran's new album is devoted to the music of James Reese Europe. So Jason, let's hear your interpretation of it. But first, introduce it for us. Tell us what you wanted to do with it.
2: Well, you know, like I said before, repetition is so important. I think just for, for all civilizations, we need phrases to repeat. And James has this simple phrase in the right hand. But it's just a rhythm, really. But I wanted to kind of plant it with a little bit of, uh, you know, you know, house music, <laughs> bass notes, and then by the end it becomes an anthem, more about a, a kind of solitude too. So I try to move it through a bunch of different moods over the next two minutes. So this is my version of Castle House Rag. right.
1: (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, And that's music with his whole band that's on Jason Moran's new album from the dance hall to the battlefield. But he's performing this for us at the piano at the studio of WNYC in New York. Um, So where do you see James Reese Europe fitting into the history of jazz? Because, Mm. um, you know, one of the things I love about his music is that the drumming often has like a military sound to it, mm. like the drum rolls right. and, you know, kind of marching beat. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I actually love marches and I love that kind of drumming, mm-hmm. but it's crazy, you know, but it's like that kind of drumming gone a little crazy.
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 That, I mean, that's kind of what his moniker is, is one of these syncopation kings. And I think, I mean, one of the things I had to rethink was, well, what does syncopation mean? And what does syncopation mean also as a metaphor for black progress, too? And when he's coming up in the early 1900s, you know, his parents move him up from Mobile, Alabama, up to D.C., and he starts taking violin lessons with Joseph Douglas, the grandson of Frederick Douglass. Like he's getting something put in his mind about futurity. And that's what excites me. So I think we hear that in the rhythm And one thing one of my great teachers, Muhal Richard Abrams, used to like to say was, you know, progress in music usually shows up in rhythm first, you know, faster than it shows up in harmony. He says it's in rhythm. And if you think about how rhythm has changed in popular music over the past 120 years, it's changed drastically. But the rhythm is the thing that we hear. So what you're hearing in that drum, you know, in the time of, you know, post-emancipation proclamation, what is the rhythm that we need to tell us? Like, where do we follow it to? And I think James Reese Europe starts to try to find a place to plant that in the songs.
1: James Reese Europe also founded the Clef Club, which is kind of like a union for black musicians. Tell us more about it.
2: Well, I think he forms this organization because the music of that time is being put everywhere, right? It's on the stages, in these houses, in these theaters. And also... I think what James Reese Europe and others see is there's something about the lack of respect given to the musicians that are playing the music, especially when they walk off of the stage, too. So what is it if we are making the music that is in demand, then you should come through the door and pay us respectfully and treat us respectfully as well. And the Clef Club is a, it's a massive organization. I mean, they even own their own building in Midtown. And it's something about this idea that you have to come through this door and respect us this way with this pay, and uh, and that also you know helps out families too. It's not simply about the musicians and the respect they deserve, but it's also about the community that they live in as well.
1: Something I also want to talk about with you about James Reese Europe. You know, he volunteers to fight in World War One, is a lieutenant, fights with the Harlem Hellfighters, leads the regiment band. Returns home to, like, uh, what, parades? I mean, he, mm-hmm. was, he got a huge welcome when he returned home. Mm-hmm. And shortly after returning from the war, shortly after surviving the war, he's stabbed in the neck mm-hmm. during intermission by his own drummer. Mm-hmm. And that is so tragic and so bizarre.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what can you tell us about that story?
2: I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is just a tragic story. I mean, they're playing their second concert on this incredible tour, this welcome home tour across America, and they're in Boston at a place called Mechanics Hall, which is on Huntington Avenue, which is only a few blocks from where I teach at New England Conservatory. And during the intermission, James Reese is greeting, you know, great musicians who come backstage to say hello um, Roland Hayes, the great singer and composer, comes backstage to say hello to James. And then this altercation happens with one of the two drummers. They're twin drummers. And this drummer stabs him in the neck. And I think James, because he's seen what real bloodshed is on a battlefield, thinks he can survive. And he tells Noble, oh, just play the second half of the concert. I'll be fine. Just make sure you get all the music and I'll meet you tomorrow. And he doesn't survive the night. Uh, from this wound, and it is uh it 's a gripping moment um for music and and let alone for this band uh, but it was the end, and he just, you know had was just about to be forty years old so it's um it 's tragic, but it uh, you know it, that he didn 't die on the battlefield you know that he died in a concert hall you know uh is is definitely bizarre.
1: Let me reintroduce you here. It's time for a break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Jason Moran. His new album is a tribute to James Reese's Europe. It's called From the Dance Hall to the Battlefield. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu.
3: In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.
1: Let's get back to the interview I recorded with Jason Moran, who was at the piano from the studio of WNYC in New York. So um, let's talk about you. You started off with classical music when you were like about six years old or something. You mm-hmm. started studying the piano through the Suzuki method, which was a, a method for teaching young children to play classical music. Mm-hmm. And then you took classical lessons after that. And then you heard Thelonious Monk playing around midnight. yes. And you've said in the past that that inspired you to play jazz. Can you play some of Round Midnight for us and talk us through what you heard in that Mm -hmm. that changed the course of your life?
2: I'll play the first opening phrase. Okay, Uh, nothing in Suzuki sounds like that. (laughs) 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 Just nothing sounds like that. And that's the intro, you know? And then it gets to one of the most incredible melodies. ¶¶ Goodness, when I heard it the first time in my parents' room, I ran downstairs to try to play it, but I couldn't hear it <laughs> like i I mean I, it's important to stress that hearing does not necessarily on off you a, hearing ages too, like how you hear and the depth of your hearing, so to hear those sounds and not be able to make them was so frustrating to me, <laughs> and I spent I guess the rest of my life trying to figure out how to make those sounds that can charge and change a life. And uh, Monk became that that source for me.
1: You were born in 1975. You grew up with hip-hop. So you were studying classical music, trying to figure out the secrets to Thelonious Monk, and also listening to a lot of hip-hop. So how does hip-hop figure into your music as a composer and player?
2: Oh, I mean, hip-hop is everything to me. You know, a lot of... Some some musicians, they say, oh, I wish I could have been there in the 1960s when Ornette Coleman came to New York. And I thought, eh, okay, you know. But <laughs> I was in New York when Biggie was here, right? I was in New York when the roots were coming up to, from Philly to play shows. I was here when Fireside was coming through New York, you know, like I saw those shows. Those groups were important, for me at least, because they, they wanted to show the humor. They wanted to show the intellect, uh... They also wanted to show how hip they were with the music that they sampled, <laughs> you know just that sample bank itself was music history and so I was always listening to those songs with that in mind too.
1: Now I've mentioned on the show today that your new album your your tribute to James Vs Europe from the dance hall to the Battlefield, is available only on bandcamp mm. for streaming or download, and the streaming is free and mm-hmm. download you have to pay. Mm-hmm you started your career on Blue Note Records.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This was like nearly 20 years ago, right? Right. Or more than that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Blue Note was a major label, and this was before streaming. So people actually, you want you want to hear music, you had to buy the record. Mm-hmm. So that's no longer the world we live in. Um, so you no longer, you have your own record label, but this new album, you didn't even bother to cut a record. It's just streaming or downloadable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. so so talk to me a little bit about where you think you are and we are mm. in terms of recorded music and and fair pay for musicians. Right. To hear their work. I'm I love as a listener mm-hmm. listening for free.
2: Mm-hmm. However, however
1: it's at the stake it's it, it's at the stake of the musicians.
2: It is, and it you know, and artists spend dollars to make this, you pay for everybody to come record. you pay to be in the studio, you pay to have it recorded and mixed and mastered and and um and I think there's something that got corrupt a while ago uh around the m- making of music. And that it's a thing that lives out there for free for people. And Bandcamp, as a source, uh, allows the artist to price the music where you want, uh, to determine which songs are streamed or not. And uh, so in the mode of the Clef club, in the mo- mode of owning the canon, I place my music there because I know at least if someone wants it, then they can they can listen and then they can pay for it. And, and it comes directly back to the artist.
1: So I would love to end with some music. And what I often do when I have a musician on our show Ooh. who's performing, I ask them to do a song that we would be surprised they like, mm. and to tell us why they actually love that song and play it for us. Would you be willing to do that?
2: Sure, I'll take you up on that. Um, I'll play. Um, I'll play "What a Wonderful World," uh, and and of course it's about Louis Armstrong, but it. You know, I'm an Aquarius, I, I kind of like darkness, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's something about the way Louis Armstrong kind of sang that song, he sang two versions of it, and the second version is more kind of like, he addresses like, there's a little bit of ambivalence about singing a song called What a Wonderful World in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, in America, and I think I started playing the song during the pandemic and really kind of meditating on the moment when he says when I think to myself so this is this is what a wonderful world you know and in parentheses when I think to myself
1: That's beautiful, thank you, and you do find the reflection and a certain sadness or sense of loss in it well,
2: i'm i I want to say that I do have optimism I do um but sometimes when I play I find something else, and the optimism fades um and it's something a little more humble than optimism (laughs) and um for me when i play it i feel like ah can i just sink inside the song and fold the song over me and can't i be the polar bear on the ice iceberg floating out to sea you know not really sure about where this is all going you know in this heated summer and um the piano you know it likes to spend time in that solitude too uh And so sometimes when I play a song, you know, all of that is wrapped in there.
1: Well, I just want to say I'm in awe of you. I think you're remarkable. I'm so grateful to you for doing our show today.
2: Thank you also for, you know, making this space. Uh, I I cherish it. Thank you.
1: Jason Moran's new album, his tribute to James Reese Europe, is called From the Dance Hall to the Battlefield. It's available only on Bandcamp. He joined us from the studios of WNYC. Our thanks to Recording Engineer Irene Trudel. An accident that causes a severe injury and disability changes a life in an instant and the chronic pain can last for the rest of your life. So how do you carry on? That's the central question in the new novel by my guest Andre the III. The main character, Tom, is a builder who falls off a roof, breaking his pelvis and hips. Those bones are held together by pins, and long after the fall, the fires around the pins are still raging. He's on disability, living in Section 8 subsidized housing, thinking, he doesn't belong here, he doesn't belong with these people. The psychic pain, spiritual void, and the anger and bitterness are constants. Debuse had personal experiences he could draw from for the novel. His father, the writer Andre Debuse, had his life changed while trying to do a good deed helping two people on the side of the road who had collided with an overturned motorcycle in the passing lane. While helping them, he was hit by a car going over 55 miles an hour, one leg was amputated, and the other was virtually paralyzed. He never walked again. Andre de the III grew up poor because his parents separated long before his father's accident, leaving his mother sometimes unable to pay the rent or buy enough food to feed herself and four children in spite of the child support payments. Andre de Buse III learned what it was like to have money after his novel House of Sand and Fog became an Oprah book club selection, a bestseller, and was adapted into a film. He has a forthcoming collection of essays called Ghost Dogs on Killers and Kin. His new novel is called Such Kindness. Andre Debusse, welcome back to Fresh Air. Let's start with a very short reading from early in your book on page 15.
4: Okay. I have spent many hours contemplating pain, Its constant presence seems like such a dark joke, really. Like the school bully who sits on your chest and spits in your face years after both of you have moved on. My pelvis and hips were fractured years ago. Do they have to keep spitting in my face?
1: I was wondering if you were thinking of your father and his accident when you decided to write a book about a horrible injury that leads to disability and chronic pain.
4: No it's interesting I I wasn't consciously thinking about my dad Terry but of course these things are in my psyche deeply. Um I've had a lot of back injuries like a lot of people over the years I've been laid up for a week or two at a time with that kind of pain that you know makes it hard to even go to the bathroom and get you know get out of bed to go to the bathroom. I think I was drawing more on my own bouts of severe pain uh and then of course the question was what about people who are never free of it? How do you get through a day in a week? But, but I think you're right. I, I hadn't thought of it consciously. But how could that not be part of my psyche? I, I watched my dad in pain for at least two straight years. He was in really hard daily pain after that accident.
1: So your injuries were caused by being a carpenter, because you're a carpenter. And you yeah, draw on that for the book, too.
4: Yeah. Uh, it's, it first started at 19, weight training. You know, I, I write about the, all that in my memoir, Townie, about how I transformed myself from a small, sedentary, scared, bullied kid into some, somebody with some muscles and some fighting skills. And I worked out four, five, six hours a day. It was in, I was insanely possessed to change my life. And I hurt myself badly. I wore a brace for a year. And um, a back brace. And then, yeah, over the years, uh, it, I would re injure it mainly doing carpentry work, you're right. And um, I just hurt it again last year and was laid up for a couple of weeks. I got some reading and writing done, but it hurt like hell.
1: There are so many descriptions of the pain in the book. Because mm. the pain is constant, you're constantly, as a reader, Reminded of that. <laughs>
4: yeah, I worried about that.
1: <laughs> no, but you had to come up with a lot of different descriptions. Mm. So, what was the process like of coming up with different descriptions to describe the same pain in his hips?
4: Well, I love this this line by the writer Paul Engle. He said that writing is rewriting what you've already rewritten. Um, I it's be- <laughs> <This>
1: is endless,
4: <laughs> isn't that great? It's friggin' endless. I began with a horrible metaphor of rats gnashing at his pelvis and his hip bones, and I mean, I, I think the first few drafts, even the ones I was working on with my editor at Norton, were with the rat in the pelvis, and and it was turning everybody off and i thought it was effective but then it became too loud it was like too loud of an instrument in the band and i and i revised it and said well that's not accurate i was just really doing something over the top there and then i i remembered my own pain and it felt more like a fire it felt more like a flame and so then you know it's again it's about revising to hopefully to greater truth if you can and so, yeah, so then the flames came in. Um, but every time, I, I, you know, I was worried about the reader. Oh, Jesus. They, they, I'm asking the reader to, to sit through a lot for the first part of this book, not just the physical pain, but, of course, the poverty and the depression and the despair. And uh, so it was—I'm just taking a gamble that they'll hold on the way Tom holds on.
1: My guest is writer Andre Debuse, author of the new novel Such Kindness. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break— I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from Scholastic with Hummingbird by Natalie Lloyd. Now in paperback, Hummingbird is a funny, magical tale about Olive, a girl with brittle bone disease who refuses to let her disability stand in the way of adventure.
1: Let's get back to my interview with Andre DeBuse. His new novel is called Such Kindness. His earlier books include the best-selling novel, House of Sand and Fog, and the best-selling memoir, Townie. His father, Andre Dubuze, was also a celebrated writer. You know, your memoir, Townie, starts with you jogging with your father before his accident. Yeah. Um, and At this point in your story, in, in, in the memoir, your parents are separated, you're living with your mother, but your father visits usually once a w- week, and on this visit, yeah. you're going jogging with him. But you don't mm-hmm. have good sneakers, so you borrow your older sister's sneakers, but they're really mm-hmm. too small, and you run two five-and-a-half-mile laps with your father. Your feet are, like, swollen mm-hmm. and bleeding, and they really hurt. Um, mm-hmm. And So I thought it was interesting that that memoir starts with pain, too, with physical pain.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that, and the memoir begins with that because that's when I really begin. Yeah, I had, I, I'd run only once in my life. I was eight years old and when my dad lived with us and I ran two miles with him. And now it's eight years later. I'm 16. I'm lifting weights. I'm not in aerobic shape. Yeah. And I'm wearing these shoes two sizes too small and I'm in agony just walking to the trail. And yeah. So we end up running 11 miles and, uh, I was hobbling the last few, but in our, you know, it opens the book because there, there's something about me and my relationship to physical pain that's probably not healthy, but I, it felt as if I was purging the small, weak, sedentary, cowardly boy I'd been, with physical agony, and and it's something that I I still do forty fifty years later. I, there's still a part of me that does workouts long and hard to purge and to cleanse and to <laughs> forge. And, um, but that's not Tom Lowe's pain. His is different.
1: Let's get to you and being bullied and then becoming a fighter. Um, Yeah. When you were growing up, or after your father left when you were 10, you went to so many different schools, in part because you had to move all the time because of the rent. And so you'd go to a new school and you'd be bullied and you didn't want to fight. So you hid. You spent a lot of time just kind of like hiding and trying to become invisible. Mm. Uh, But you were still beaten up. Your brother was beaten up, your younger brother. And Mm -hmm. then you started lifting weights, working out and eventually boxing. Um, What was the turning point for you where you decided, I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm going to transform myself physically.
4: Well, it was a pretty traumatic turning point um, I was 14, my brother was 13 um, You know, if you know violence well, and sadly too many do You tend to have three reactions You either fight like hell, you run like hell, or you freeze And Terry, I was always the kid who froze Because I was still trying to rationalize Why is he being mean to me? Why is he punching me in the face? I wasn't mean to him And then one day everything changed. Uh, My brother, uh, it's a long story I'll compress, but a a grown man came home on leave from the Army, 20 years old, a military policeman, to beat up my little 13-year-old brother Uh, because he heard things were going on with his sister who was also 12 or 13 he didn't like. He comes home, words out, this guy's going to kill my brother, and then he's walking up the street. My brother's getting out of the car, Is. Teachers dropping him off from school. My brother's in the eighth grade. I'm standing there. I see this guy and his posse coming up the street. I said, Jeb, run inside, run inside!" And he didn't. And this guy beat up my brother mercilessly in front of me. And I froze. I froze. And I said, "Come on, man! What?" He said, "Quiet. You're next." And I froze, and, you know, I just wanted to be over with and hoping he didn't kill my brother. The teacher screaming, and it was an unusual day, Terry, because my mother, who worked 12 to 14 hours a day down in Boston, was home with, sick with the flu. And she comes out in her nightgown, picks a stick up off the ground, and starts to swing it at him. And he calls her a name I won't repeat. And here is her oldest son, standing there, doing nothing, because I'm terrified. I'm frozen. Eventually, it's all over. My, my mother and the teacher are tending to my brother inside. And I don't know if I stood outside of my house for five minutes or an hour, but my self-hatred could not get any hotter. The self-loathing would never get worse. I went into my house, looked at my 13, 14-year-old baby face. I had hair down to my waist because it was the 70s. And I told my face, you will never not fight again, because I don't care about you anymore. I don't care if you die. I don't care if you get shot or stabbed. You will never not fight back. And then I began to do push-ups and sit-ups, began to lift weights. I I joined a boxing gym, and much to my surprise, not only had athletic ability, but boxing talent. And I became a a fighter for eight, ten years. I'd go to a house party. I would go places where I knew I would find bad behavior. I especially was looking for some I'm about to to swear, some man who's going to backhand his wife or his girlfriend, and I'd put him in the hospital, or I'd try to. I was beaten up a few times, but not nearly as much as I should have been. I was not a tough guy. I was an insane guy. And... And I got social rewards. The local cops loved me because I was going after guys they wanted to but couldn't really? without losing their – oh, yeah, they loved me. They couldn't I, without losing their badges. They could oh, yeah. And, and, and you know, women started to notice me, but that wasn't the point as much as I enjoyed that part of it. It really was trying to exercise that physical coward inside me. And it made me a very dangerous guy um, for a long time. And what what so what changed it, what got me off that – is I said, okay, I'm not afraid to fight anymore. I'm afraid not to fight. So I've got to stop this because I'm going to get killed. You know, the word intuition, if you look at the Latin root, it means to watch over or to guard. And I knew not only might I get killed doing this by a much tougher guy, but worse than that maybe, I'm going to kill somebody. I, who hate violence and hate cruelty, I'm actually, I might kill someone. And so I began to box as a way to channel all that. And I stopped going places where it was easy to get in a fight. And, and that's when I discovered creative writing.
1: Well, let's get to the creative writing in a minute. But um, uh, you, you write in your memoir with physical violence, there was always the wreckage after not just the bruises mm. and lacerations, the chipped teeth or fractured bones. There was a hangover of the spirit would you describe the hangover of the spirit after you beat oh. somebody
4: up? Oh yeah, um, you know, uh, three guys pulled over my best friend and his wife, and pulled a knife on my my best friend and threatened to you know assault their you know his fiance at the time, and we found him and I and I I beat all three of them and and I was kicking a man in the head with steel toed boots and if my You know, I was 22, 23 years old. And if my girlfriend had not pulled me away, I probably would have murdered him. And and the next day, um, I felt as if my soul had been dragged through toxic sewage. I felt as if—and it's not all—it wasn't all that. I had blood on my pant cuff. Part of me was still amazed that I'd gone from being a victim to a victimizer of victimizers. But the sensitive, sweet kid inside me who I thought was there all along was mortified at who I was becoming. I was becoming the disease I thought I was fighting, and uh, it was bad.
1: It's really hard, I would imagine, (laughs) to write about family if the family member is alive or to write about a close friend if the close friend is alive and to do it through memoir or essay and not fiction. Yeah. Uh, because there's no deniability in memoir or, or essay you can't say. It's not you. It's just this character. I just made it up. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, but your father told you, don't be like me and wait until your father is dead to write about him. You can write about your parents while they're alive. Did you take that advice?
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, I waited until he died. <laughs> but not purposely. I did write a story, uh, one of the first short stories I ever wrote. Um probably the most autobiographically-based piece of fiction I ever wrote. It's called Wolves in the Marsh, and it was about, I captured the moment my father drove away from our rented house in the New Hampshire woods, my mother crying inside the house like she's being stabbed, we four kids walking our father to his packed car, him driving away. And this image is in town because it's from my memory and from my life. And my little brother, Jeb, who was seven or eight, then chasing my father, throwing rocks at the car, yelling, You bum, you bum. And we're all crying. And I, I wrote a short story about that. And I left out the You bum, you bum, because at that point I'd forgotten it. And my father reads the story. <laughs> he calls me up and says, Hey, when I said to start, you could write about me before we're dead, I didn't mean right away. <laughs> and he said, he said, and by the way, Jeb was running, was throwing rocks and calling me a bum. You didn't put that in, did you? I said, oh, man, I forgot about that. But I put it in Townie. <laughs> I don't know if I could have written Townie, uh, my memoir, if my father had been alive. And I'll tell you why. And this didn't occur to me till years after even publishing that book. And that is this. For years, you know... My mother would say to my father, oh, I wish we could have done more for the kids when they're growing up. And my father would get defensive. And I want to make it very clear. We lived, we were a member of the educated working poor. You know, my father was making $7,000 a year as a full-time faculty member in the 60s. When he retired from this college in the late 80s, he was only making 20000 a year. My mom never made more than 12000 a year. They had four kids. We just didn't have much. But he was very defensive about that. He, you know, he would give his child support. It would be most of his check. He lived on very little. Um, but it wasn't enough across the river where we lived. And so he would get defensive. And over the years, I would see this and think, okay, my dad and I are close now. We're buddies. He's too sensitive and too too smart. I got to tell him, come on, man, you got to tell, I got to let you know, it was hard over there in those neighborhoods. It was hard on the other side of that river in that town. And you're too beautiful of an artist to be blind to this. And I just, as I was getting up my nerve to have that talk with him, he got run over and I want to lay it on him. Mm. And then about 12 years later, now he's, you know, accustomed. I mean, he's, he's living the life of a man in a wheelchair. The physical pain is gone. I said, okay, man, I'm going to sit down with, him. I'm going to tell him now and then he died. And I think this, in many ways, that memoir is a conversation with my father we never had.
1: Do you feel lucky at all that you never got to have it, or do you feel deprived?
4: Um, well, I feel two things, Terry. I feel deprived because I think we would have been closer with that talk. But I am um, grateful I got Townie out of my system. Uh, I found a way to write about violence and poverty and fatherlessness, uh, that I, I didn't know how much I needed to put that down on paper. And the whole time I'm writing it, I'm thinking, I, this is too personal. I'm not going to publish this, but I, man, do I need to write it. And I just kept seeing the faces of my, my three children and I'm thinking, you know, they'll know me better. They'll know their family better and I wrote it. I want to speak for a moment, though. You said that it must be very hard to write about someone in a memoir who's alive. I got to share with you the fantastic advice from my friend Richard Russo, the novelist, and this is before he wrote his own memoir elsewhere. I said, I'm just so tortured. I I know I'm supposed to write more about these guys my editor had read the first draft and she said well this street violence is interesting but didn't you live with people (laughs) (laughs) i said yeah but i don't i don't want to i mean come on it's one thing to shine a light on my own privacy i mean how do i write about them she said but isn't that part of your story too and And so that night I saw Rick at a party and I told him what she said and he gave me the most helpful advice. And I I have to share it because I think it's really helpful to people who are writing essays or memoirs about their lives. He said, if it were me, I'd ask myself, am I trying to hurt anybody with this? Am I trying to settle any scores? If the answer is yes, I wouldn't write it or I'd write it, but I wouldn't publish it. The answer is no, I'd go ahead and write it. And, you know, when when I wrote that memoir, I was... Turning 50, all my anger at my parents had dissipated over the years with therapy and time, and I just wanted to— I knew I just—I wasn't mad at anybody. I didn't want to hurt anybody. I just wanted to capture as well as I possibly could what was it like to be a small, sensitive child living in a mill town in the 70s, Nixon flying off in his helicopter, Vietnam limping to a finish, um, no fathers around— too much sex and drugs and violence, you know, and I wrote it.
1: Do you ever feel guilty in spite of that, in spite of the fact that your father has been dead for years? Because I don't know with myself, when, when I say something negative about my parents, oh yeah, who I deeply loved, I feel this like tinge of like guilt for saying it. And I feel like Somehow they know I've said it. And I, I don't really literally believe that. I don't, like, believe in an afterlife. But I somehow imagine them hearing it and being really
4: upset. Oh, I'm so with you. Uh, no, and I, I don't have guilt. I have bottomless black remorse, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wake up at 3 in the morning. <laughs> Not so much now because... Uh, Tony came out in 2011, but it, it, especially the first five or six years, I would get all these letters, and and you know, from all sorts of people. A lot of whom who grew up poor and were single moms, and you know, and a lot and everybody hated the old man, and and I just felt so terrible about that. I did not set out to make him look bad. And and so I would feel horrible and I would talk to my dead father in my sleep, say, Come on man, you know you know I love you and I respect you, but damn it, you have to admit you weren't there. You know, as I was writing that memoir, um, and I think I draw on this in such kindness in, in Tom Lowe's character, having grown up fatherless too in scarcity, but is and when I was writing that, Terry <sighs> And this is what I love about writing. I think the writing is always larger than the writer. If you are free falling into your psyche with words and curiosity and a truth seeking intent. And what I found was my father's daily absence in my remembered life on the page became a predominant presence in the book. And in in writing it taught me that I was far more fatherless than I'd ever accepted. And so I couldn't fudge that. It had to be part of the story, even though I did not want it in there. Blaise Pascal says famously and harshly, but beautifully, you know, uh, anything written to please the author is worthless. And, and I think he's right. It's not about pleasing the author. It's about pleasing the truth. And so, yes horrible remorse. I still talk to him. You know, in preparation for our talk, I was reading the opening pages of, of both books, Such Kindness and then Townie. And, and then I, I read that section of my father and I running together. Um, and I began to cry, began to weep. And, uh, you know, that's just that's just the life of being in a family, isn't it?
1: What made you cry?
4: Oh, uh, when, we, when, I, when the younger me gets to the top of the hill the first lap and with my feet in agony because I'm wearing my sister's two small shoes and, of course, I don't want to tell my father I don't have shoes because he'll get mad at my mother for not spending his money well. He, it just wasn't enough. And then I remember the two of us running side by side. I was 15. He was 30, 38, 39. And... Um, <sighs> you know, and, and I've run side by side with my big strapping six foot two, 220 pound sons. And I just felt the, I felt, I felt the torches of generations passed down, but I particularly felt how close my father and I were in that moment. And, uh, oh, it's killing me now. You know, I just, uh, you know, he's been dead almost 25 years and, uh, I'm older than he ever got to be. Uh, But, you know, we're all like the skins of an onion, aren't we? You know, I'm 63, but that 15-year-old boy is sitting right here talking to you too. And and, and there's a part of him I think is still alive, and it's not just his work or his grandkids or his kids. I think something goes on.
1: It's such a pleasure to talk with you, Andre. I really appreciate you coming back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Andre DeBuse's new novel is called Such Kindness. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winner's Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried-and-true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winner's Color Choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. With benefits kicking in as close as a 100 miles from home, you can protect your travel plans whether you're driving across state lines or flying cross-country. Learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com.
2: This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out, what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First, every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts.